Today's going to be a little different. Um, just to give you a little bit of a heads up, we're going to chart through quite a bit of territory, and we're going to talk about some things that are going to be a little squeamish, okay? So just want to give you a heads up about that. Not terribly squeamish, but maybe just a little bit, because we're going to be doing some history. How many of you feel like this? Anxious, anxiety, or feeling as if you're reliving trauma or stress? It's only the second week of 2017. Well, to this, last week I passed out red cards, yellow cards, and blue cards. And because I can imagine that, in, even in the second week of 2017, there's some anxiety or stress, or there are some challenges that we all face, whether they are ones that we are aware of consciously or sometimes they are traumas that we face subconsciously. I'm not going to hand out cards today. I'm going to hand out stress balls. So everybody gets a stress ball today. Please take one, pass it out, and hold on to it. And you're going to just have it in your hands. This is for all of you who are tactile, kinesthetic learners. And for those of you who maybe happen to be feeling some emotional angst during this time and during this season, it's going to be a moment where sometime within the teach, I'll be sharing a couple things about some of the history of our ancestors, of our fathers and our mothers and our brothers and sisters that have gone before us. And there are going to be times when you're going to hear some things about what they did, and you're just going to need to squeeze onto something because some of what is some of what we're talking about is going to be a little bit agony inducing. Again, not a lot, but I just wanted to give you a heads up. Today, what I'm going to do, which is a little bit different, is we're going to try to go all the way back to the beginning and chart through some of the history and take a look at the larger story that was being told all throughout history that is actually, there's remnants of it in your Bible but because of the way we approach things and because of the way we see things and because of the way we read, we don't always pay attention to those things. So what I'm going to do is try to go through a lot of history quickly, but I want to give you a little bit of an impression of what our early, uh, what the early Christians believed, thought, felt, and experienced. Because this is history. This is stuff that they went through. And it will help us contextualize a little bit of what we're going through, the challenges that we have when it comes to uh, societies, when it comes to trauma, when it comes to tragedy, when it comes to politics, when it comes to socioeconomics, all of those things that we deal with today are stress-inducing, can be challenging. And what I'm hoping to illuminate for us, hoping to share, is that these stories are forged in the fires of tragedy. They don't just emerge out of, hey, I've got a great idea, or God somehow revealed something to me, and it comes down out of heaven. No, they're actually created within the context of tragedy, agony, pain, suffering. And I want to share with you a little bit about what our ancestors went through, and hopefully that will help us contextualize a little bit of what we're going through. And if you feel a little anxiety, hopefully this will help. And if you're feeling some anxiety that has nothing to do with this and your brain is just constantly going to your boss, then hopefully that will help as well. Let's start at the very beginning, shall we? 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface and the face of the waters, and God made this beautiful creation. This is the beginning, not just of Genesis chapter 1. This is the beginning of the entire narrative and story that we tell even to this day. And part of the reason why we're doing the exercise we're doing today is because we often in our modern discussions and devotional times, in our quiet times, in our faith walks and journey, we don't recall this frequently enough. So we need to remind ourselves that the beginning of our story is a story about creation and about how God created every single one of us in his image and in his likeness, breathed life into us, set us into a beautiful garden, and called us to care for it, to serve it, to protect it. And this was a beautiful thing. And life was amazing. There was a beautiful relationship between us and God, beautiful relationship between each other, and a beautiful relationship between us and the created universe. And all was very, very good. But you know the story. Things don't always end up that way. Genesis takes all sorts of different turns. And God has to do a redo. He starts over because the earth was so violent and full of in the Hebrew, Hamas, which is violence and destruction. And so God starts over with Noah and floods the earth, which is really a baptism to start all over again. And after that event, God places his bow in the sky to create an amazing relationship and covenant. Just like in Genesis, where we walked closely together, so now, Noah, you and your descendants and I will walk closely together. This covenant-making continues on, and God creates another covenant, which is this beautiful, special relationship with another guy by the name of Abraham. And he says, Abraham, if people are going to bless you, I will bless them. Wherever you go, you're going to be a blessing. The Messiah or blessing is going to come through you to all the nations. And God is creating a beautiful identity for all of the children of Abraham. And for those of you who grew up in church, you know the song, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So, let's just praise the Lord. So, there's the, there's the beautiful relationship. Now, the reason why we're going over this, some of this is just review for you, but this is foundational to the identity of the people of which we read in our scriptures. And then there's this other layer that coexists with the beautiful, dynamic, brilliant relationship with the divine, there's also oppression. There's also injustice. There's also powers that exist that cause us to go, wait a second, I thought this was a good creation. I thought God had created us to be caretakers of this universe, caretakers of this world. I thought we were supposed to live in a good place That guy in charge oppressing us is not good. And so something happens. I want want you to think psychologically and humanly. What happens in your mind and your soul if the story that you've been telling over and over and over again is that there's a good God? He's a good, good father. And you're living in chains under oppression under the ruler and the powers and the authority is of somebody who is unjust and honestly doesn't care about you, is more threatened by you, and as a result of that fear and threat, oppresses you even more. 
what kind of relationship, what kind of awareness, what kind of theology, philosophy, living do you begin to conjure up? And here with a person by the name of Pharaoh, we begin a series of events that just pummel the people of Israel over and over and over again. Pharaoh, of course, many of you know the story about the Exodus. And Exodus 3 reads, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the story they begin to tell themselves. The story that they write down, pass down to us, is we know that this is a good God and a good creation, but we're under this oppression, but this is the God that we know. And we are now creating an idea of God, a theology of God, a a way of understanding our place in this world with God through redemption, salvation, and the land, the land begins to take central place in these people's minds and these hearts. That land becomes theirs. They head into, you know, the Joshua story. And slowly over time, through conquest and a a couple wars, which is complicated, of course, they establish their place. And another way of them thinking about how God had come down and saved them, God had come down and done this miraculous work in their lives, is to build a temple as a monument to that God, as a place where you go and worship that God, as a place that reminds you that God is here. He is good. The sacrifices that we participate remind us of this beautiful relationship that we have with God. But then you have, once again, another pummeling, a guy by the name of Sennacherib, who in 722, an Assyrian king, comes through And decides, basically, I want to expand my kingdom from Assyria. So he begins a major conquest. And in 722 BC, he makes his way to Israel and begins taking out city after city after city after city. The people of God, the people who knew that they were in covenant with God, begin to get decimated again. This is an actual frieze that you can find from Sennacherib's palace in the city of Nineveh. It's really quite amazing. You can see him here on the throne. You can see people that are bowing down and subservient to him. Uh, Here's another one where there's uh, some people believe that there were body parts because Sennacherib and the Assyrians were just really brutal, ruthless to the people that they oppressed. And so they would cut off body parts and you can see the subservience. And then you can see Sennacherib right there. Riding what looks like a Segway to me, so I'm not quite sure what that is. I guess that's a shield. So in 722, Sennacherib comes in, exiles. What's going on? I thought we were the people of God. I thought we had this beautiful relationship. Then he comes through. Guess what? A couple hundred years later, another guy comes through by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And in 586-87, he comes through, does the exact same thing, and starts destroying city after city after city, and ultimately gets to the city of Jerusalem. Now, Sennacherib never could take Jerusalem, which was a little bit of a sign of, okay, maybe God is still with us. But that falls by the wayside, because by the time Nebuchadnezzar comes through, he sets up shop, which is what's known as a siege in wartime language. He sets up a siege around Jerusalem. 
And basically, you starve the people out. You don't give them any food or water provisions. Second King talks about and writes about this event. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine became so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. That's what happens when you lay siege. Now, again, I want to remind you, these are the people of God who have lived by the creation story, who believe that they're in covenant with God, who believe that they are the chosen people, and this is happening to them. What's going through your mind? How do you reconcile this? How do you put all of this together? How do you, how do you function with that cognitive dissonance? Lamentations even writes more poignantly, The tongue of the infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives them anything. Those who feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple cling to ash heaps. Happy were those pierced by the sword than those pierced by hunger. Let that sit in for a second. Happier were those pierced by the sword than those pierced by hunger. What kind of situation and circumstance are these Israelites facing where death is preferred over the suffering? What kind of situation and circumstance is that? That happens in 586. I'm skipping over, obviously, a lot of history. And this kind of brutal regime continues. A couple hundred years later, this guy by the name of Alexander the Great comes through around 333, 332 B.C. And he takes over everything all the way to India. And he, once again, decimates everybody, every place. And he institutes a whole new way of thinking called Hellenism. It's a Greek way of thinking about the world, which is very, very different from how the Jews were used to thinking about the world. And there are some writings about what Alexander the Great did, and this is one of them. First Maccabees, chapter 1. He fought many battles, conquered strongholds, and put to death the kings of the earth. He advanced to the ends of the earth and plundered many nations. When the earth became quiet before him, he was exalted, and his heart was lifted up. In those days, certain renegades came out from Israel and misled many, saying, Let us go and make a covenant with the Gentiles around us. For since we separated from them, many disasters have come upon us. Do you hear what this author is saying? The people of God, in covenant with Yahweh, their God, the beautiful, relational, intimate God that had brought them out of the horrid place of Egypt, those people now are saying, Let's go make a covenant with Alexander the Great's folks. Why? Because, you know, you know, if we don't, we, if we don't buddy-buddy up to them, then bad things are going to happen to us. And this author of Maccabees is going to say, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? This proposal pleased them. And some of the people eagerly went to the king who authorized them to observe the ordinances of the Gentiles. They're selling out. They, they're basically giving up the faith. There's a fancy word, apostasy. Forget following Yahweh. Forget following this God that we've been following this entire time. Let's get into this. So they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem, according to Gentile custom, and removed the marks of circumcision. Now squeeze your stress ball. And abandoned the holy covenant. 
They joined with the Gentiles and sold themselves to do evil. There's this tension that is now arising when these foreign powers and these foreign governments come in to provide oppression. What do you do? Do you sell out? Some of them did. Do you maintain strong? Some of them did. What I want you to feel is there is this constant tension of believing that you are loved, blessed, favored by God, chosen by God, and yet having to live under these kinds of regimes. It gets worse. Later on, after Alexander the Great dies, one of his generals takes over by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, and he makes everything Jewish illegal. And says, if you obey Sabbath, you're done. By the way, it is now law for you to eat pork, which of course is an abomination to the Jewish people. And there's one story that I really wish I could read, but it's even squeamish for me to read. A story in Second uh, Maccabees about a mother and her seven sons standing before the king. And the king is telling these Jewish boys, why don't you just eat the flesh of a swine? Why don't you just eat the flesh of a pig rather than suffer the consequences? What consequences? They fried, they put a pan over a fire, ripped the skin off of their faces and off of their backs, chopped off their limbs, and fried them to death. One by one by one. And this story is heartbreaking and oh, just wrenching as the mother says, don't give in. Don't give up. Don't forsake this God that has saved us, that we have been so covenanted with. What would you do? Do you feel the tension? Are you feeling some anxiety, some stress? <laughs> it keeps going, people. Pompeii in 63 comes through, sets up siege in Jerusalem. Again, are you noticing a theme? Here these people are just trying to live their life, and these foreign powers keep coming through. And this time when Pompeii sets up, it takes about three months for the siege to happen. And Josephus, an ancient historian, writes this, But now all was full of slaughter, some of the Jews being slain by the Romans and some by one another. In other words, some Jews were killing other Jews for selling out. Nay, some there who threw themselves down on the precipices or put fire to their houses and burnt them as not able to bear the miseries they were under. Of the Jews there fell 12,000, but of the Romans very few. They were under such oppression by this foreign power that had come in that they decided to burn their own houses and take their own lives. What kind of existence is it where death is preferred rather than the suffering? I wish I could tell you it's over. It's not. Because after Rome continues its oppression and then they go through several Roman emperors, Nero, you know, Claudius, Caligula, all these people, and every single one of them are bad, the culmination, at least of this segment of the story that I'm telling, is a guy by the name of Vespasian, who begins his conquest and reign. See, all throughout this time, Jews are trying to fight back, trying to get control, trying to maintain some semblance of national identity in the midst of this oppression. And starting here at a place called Gamla, again, I told you this was going to be an advertisement for Israel, starting here at a place called Gamla, which is a Hebrew and Aramaic word for camel, and you can see why there's a little hump there. 
Vespasian comes in and begins, set up siege. And about 9,000 people that live in this city are fighting for their very lives. And all sorts of crazy things happen. Josephus talks and writes about this that happened there at Gamla. A great number also of those that were surrounded on every side and despaired of escaping threw their children and their wives and themselves also down the precipices into the valley beneath, which near the citadel had been dug hollow to a vast depth. When we go there, we actually hike up to the top of Gamla right there in the top corner. And we stand there and we look at the rocks where this event took place. And you can't help but even feel a visceral sense of sorrow and anguish as when the Romans came through, started oppressing, you start to realize there's no way out of this. Do we live as slaves with Rome or is it better off to just simply die? But so it happened that the anger of the Romans appeared not to be so extravagant as was the madness of those that were now taken. While the Romans slew but 4,000, whereas the number of those that had thrown themselves down was found to be 5,000. So according to Josephus, about 5,000 people took their lives right here in Gamla, approximately 68 AD. Vespasian continues, and starting in the north of Israel, just like the Babylonians, just like the Assyrians, just like the Greeks, comes down, takes out Jerusalem. You can see the stones that are still left there today, which is reminiscent of what Jesus talks about in Matthew 24. As Jesus came out of the temple and was going away, his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Then he asked them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. Of course, this being spoken around 30, maybe 32, 33 A.D., and the fall of Jerusalem happening around 70 A.D. Vespasian takes everything out of the temple, the sacred holy place that is the representative of God's favor and covenant with the people, pilfers it, takes it to Rome. This is, um, you can see this on the Arch of Titus in Rome. And one author, James Carroll, writes this about this event that happened around 70, 70, 71. Those caught by the Romans were promptly and prominently crucified so that the Jews could see and, as the corpses rotted, smell, whom they were dealing with. The siege lasted most of a year, during which something like 10,000 crosses sprouted in a ring around the inner city, each with its stinking cadaver. This happened about 30, 40 years after the death of Jesus. This campaign continues all the way down, and it ends at a place called Masada. For those of you who've been there, you know that they lay siege to that place, and about 10,000 Jewish refugees are held up in this location. And they're trying to just save themselves, be the last bastion of hope. When a guy by the name of Elazar Ben-Yair, the commander of that location, finally gives this heroic or perhaps tragic speech to the people, it is better to take our lives than to be subjected to the Romans. Are you noticing a theme? And he says, come, while our hands are free and can hold a sword, let them do a noble service. Let us die unenslaved by our enemies and leave this world as free men in company with our wives and our children. They cast lots. Ten soldiers 
go around and kill everybody, then they turn the swords on themselves. Those lots, fascinatingly enough, have been found back in 19, approximately in the 1970s. And one of them actually says, Ben Yair, substantiating the story. Pharaoh. Sennacherib. Nebuchadnezzar. Alexander the Great. Antiochus Epiphanes. Pompey. Vespasian. Now, I know that was a whole lot of history. I hope you didn't fall asleep too much. I hope you didn't cringe too much. I hope you held on to your stress ball quite a bit. The reason why I go over this is this. We're in a series called The Gospel. The Good News. This is good news. Yes? And what we so often forget is that the context from which this good news emerged was that tragedy, that history, over and over and over and over again. And these people, our ancestors, took this beautiful creation story about who we were in relationship with God and had to face a brutal reality over and over and over again. James Carroll, in his book, Christ, actually puts it this way. We forget the extreme human suffering, the evil that formed the context within which both Christianity and rabbinic Judaism came into being. When you read your Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and even the story of Acts, when you read the letters to Paul, when you read your New Testament and even portions of your Old Testament, what we often forget is that they were written during the time of massive oppression, human suffering, the evil that existed amongst those people. In other words, the stories that we tell today, the good news that we tell today, was forged in the fires of tragedy, oppression, injustice, really, really bad things that are happening. Now, my friends... This isn't just a history lesson. This is a human lesson. Because I would imagine that maybe those of us here did not face that kind of oppression. But I would imagine that many of us in this room feel or carry around with us some sort of agony, some sort of tragedy, some sort of disappointment, some sort of angst, or some sort of Hope that was not realized. And when we come to the good news of Jesus and we we get to this, whatever this gospel is, our context, what we bring to it, shapes and fashions and molds how we respond and how we make sense to that good news. This is Jesus. Fascinatingly enough, he's going to talk about this stuff that's coming. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All this is but the beginning of the birth pangs. 
Then they will hand you over to be tortured and will put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. I hope this passage has new significance for you. This is from Matthew 24. After knowing all of that history, what Jesus is talking about here, what so many of us think, well, someday in the future this is going to happen to the first believers, to the first followers of Jesus that read this, that heard this, they go, oh yeah, we know exactly what you're talking about. Then many will fall away, and they will betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. I hope you feel that, oh yeah, that makes sense to me. If I were living in that, my love would probably grow cold too. My idea of grace and humanity would probably suffer as a result of what we just went through. And here's this amazing twist and turn. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel, this good news of the kingdom, will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all the nations, including all of us here today, listening and reading these stories. And then the end will come. The fullness and the completion. In other words, Jesus talked about the good news right after he talked about the bad news. And the good news that we talked about last week of the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus comes within the context of this horrible, horrible news that these people were facing. Now, what I just read for you probably has a thousand different interpretations. And as we do at Spark, I'm going to share with you my thoughts, but they are not the thoughts. They're just some thoughts. You might come up with your own, and I hope you do, because this is the beauty of being in a community where your story informs my story. Your tragedy, your agony, your pain, your suffering, your disappointment informs a different way of thinking about this. But here's a couple things that I just thought might Jesus be talking about. Part of the good news is that what is happening to Jesus, his death, is happening to us. There is a clear sense that this God empathizes, knows, feels, walks through with us. Good news is not the escape from misery. Good news is a God that goes through the misery with us so that we are not alone. Other good news that possibly could come. Don't give up. Don't give in. Do not let your love grow cold because death may come. Tragedy may come, but the worst thing is to let your heart grow cold and cynical and hateful and spiteful because of the oppression of other people. But if you do give up, you are, can still be a part of this family because the Gospels tell a story of a whole bunch of young men and women that gave up. Peter said, I'm out of here. This is a little bit too much for me. Thank you very much. And yet he is still a part of the full movement and the family of God. So the good news is even if whatever tragedy or agony or suffering you are facing, you give up and you say, I just can't do this anymore. Congratulations. The good news is still for you. You do not have to go, well, I denied. So I guess that's it for you. No, this story is about you denied. You are still in the story. 
And ultimately, the good news is about hope and love, which comes within the context of incredible pain and suffering and oppression. James Carroll goes on to write, Humans are forever on the hunt for meaning, but brute experience can force radical breakthroughs in other orders of existence. Savage war generates, in reaction, new ideas. And this principle undergirds the line of thinking here, that the Roman war against the Jews prompted radical shifts in the religious imagination of the Jews. And I want to share with you that if you are a follower of the way of Jesus, you are a product of one of those radical shifts that Jesus marked out for the Jewish people during that time under that kind of an oppression and said, let me show you this way of living. Let me show you this way of loving. Let me show you this way of forgiving and not letting your heart grow cold. Let me show you this way of loving your enemy. Oh, hear that phrase, knowing that history, love your enemies. Oh my goodness, are you kidding me? And that pain and that suffering and that war is the fires that forged this good news. And these people knew it. And they knew that that experience that they had, they had to face and allow that experience to transform who they were in the midst of that pain and that suffering to chart a different way forward. Not to succumb to it, but to develop a new religious imagination in and through it. This is one way that I've put it, the ability to turn pure destruction into creative transformation. The ability to turn whatever agony and pain and suffering that you're in into some sort of transformation of the soul by following in the way of this Jesus and proclaiming that way and his life and his resurrection and that story to be the good news. That history is their history. We have our own. We have lots of stories that we could tell ourselves about the tragedies and the agonies and the pains that we have suffered. That could be national. That could be tragic loss or disease. For some of us and for many of us, as we've talked about many times before, it could be religious. A tragedy, an agony, an oppression, some sort of horrible event that happened at the hands of people that were supposed to be kind and loving and caring and communal. Or it could be the sinful ways and nature of this horrible humanity and how we treat one another and the pains that you carry around with you. And my friends, the reason why we went through that entire story of all of those oppressions and all of those regimes and all of those pains and all of that history, which honestly possibly could get like, okay, what is this really all about? What it's all about is that the suffering and the pain that we have to this day has been around ever since the beginning of the gospel. And the gospel, the good news is the exact thing that meets you in your pain and your suffering to help create a whole new way of living 
here and now. We may not have Roman emperors in the same way, but we have these emperors. And in this bad news, we have the commission, the responsibility, and the joy of creating good news, of living good news through all of that. So my suggestion, my friends, is that part of telling this entire story in the study of our good news is to remind ourselves that they back then had the ability, somehow, I don't know how, to turn pure destruction into creative transformation. So much so that you and I are here today as inheritors of that tradition, of that good news. And hopefully, it inspires us to face whatever tragedy and agony and pain and suffering that we have today. And to turn that into a creative transformation into us here. Now again, I've been very conceptual on purpose. Because I don't know what that's going to mean for you. I don't know what that's going to mean for your community. I don't know what that's going to mean for your journey. I don't know what that's going to mean for the agony and the pain that you carry. This is the journey that we all have to be upon. And that, I hope, is why understanding bad news helps us understand better how we can embrace good news today. You get to keep this as a reminder, and maybe it'll help you create some good news, to live in that way of Jesus wherever you might happen to be. Father God, I'm so overwhelmed sometimes by the horrid tragedies of our ancestors, and somehow, some way, they created love, hope, redemption, in and through all of that suffering. Many of us today are uncertain how to do that. Many of us today sometimes feel weary, God, tired, strained. So help us to captivate and be captivated by their ability to transform that destruction into creative transformation. Help us to be captivated by that power and that good news. Help us to follow in your way and to live out this good news right in the middle of our pain and suffering here today. We pray in your name. Amen.